Section 29 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Chapter 8. Religious War in Germany by A. F. Pollard. Part 3. The popular antipathy to Charles and his Spaniards, the genuine devotion of the middle classes to Lutheranism, were the levers which Maurice and his fellow princes used for their own ends. They rebelled neither to free the German nation nor to redeem the true religion. Their real motive was fear, lest Charles should establish a strong monarchy and reduce their oligarchy to the impotence to which they had endeavoured to reduce his sovereignty. This apprehension had begun to work soon after the Battle of Mulberg. As early as 1548, Otto of Brunswick-Harburg was intriguing in France with Henry II, who suggested a North German-Polish League. The germ of the later alliance between France and Poland against the House of Habsburg. Negotiations were soon in train between the young landgrave William of Hesse, Margrave, Hans of Custrin, Duke Albrecht of Prussia, and his suzerain Sigismund Augustus, the King of Poland. The soul of the movement was Hans of Custrin, whose refusal to acknowledge the interim had provoked the wrath of Charles V, and whose dominions in Cottbus and Crossen the one surrounded and the other bounded by Ferdinand's lands, excited that king's desires. In February 1550, a defensive league was formed between Hans of Custrin, Johann Albrecht of Mecklenburg, and Duke Albrecht of Prussia at Königsberg, and secret agents were busy in foreign lands. Chartlin in Switzerland, and George von Heideck, a cadet of the House of Württemberg, in England and the Hans Towns. Maurice had early information of these movements, but his advances were viewed with suspicion. Hans of Custrin wished to exclude him, and the young Margrave Albrecht, Alcibiades of Brandenburg, Kulmbach, from the League on account of their religious indifference but the threats of the emperor against Hans and Johann Albrecht of Mecklenburg and Maurice's success in enticing to his banners the military forces of northern Germany induced them to listen to his overtures. For this purpose his command gave Maurice every opportunity. In September 1550 he won over the troops of Duke George of Mecklenburg. In January 1551 he secured the Protestant levies of George von Heideck, and in the following month, Hans came to terms at Dresden. The deposed and imprisoned elector was the chief difficulty in Maurice's path. John Frederick vowed he would rather end his days in captivity than owe freedom to his godless and traitorous cousin. But Maurice carried his point with his allies, and in May, Hans of Custrin, Johann Albrecht of Mecklenburg and Landgrave William of Hesse consented to threaten the young Ernestines with open hostility unless they would join the League 
or at least undertake to remain neutral. Maurice also secured Duke Albrecht of Prussia, and an envoy was sent to France to request a monthly contribution of a hundred thousand crowns. In August 1551, the Bishop of Bayonne came to Hesse, and in the autumn the terms of an alliance between Henry II and the German princes were outlined. On November the 3rd, Magdeburg capitulated. To Charles, Maurice represented the surrender as a complete imperial victory, but in reality, the terms of the capitulation guaranteed to the townsfolk the religion they desired, and secured to Maurice control of the city and a basis of operations. The appeal to France involved a radical alteration of Hans of Custrin's original plan. His object had been merely defence against the threatening aspect assumed by Charles V, but mere defence was of no use to Henry II. French support could only be bought by making the League offensive, and offence was also Maurice's plan. Chagrined at having to yield the first place in the League to Maurice, and alarmed, perhaps, by the terms which Henry II demanded, Hans broke away from the League. A German who was both a patriot and a Protestant could indeed have been offered no more painful choice. The French stipulations were that the princes should undertake to vote as Henry wished at the next imperial election, and connive at his conquest and administration as imperial vicar of the bishoprics of Metz, Toul, Verdun and Cambrai. The imperial lands were to be sacrificed as the price of religious security, or rather of princely privilege. Particularism was at least as strong a motive with the princes as Protestant or patriotic feeling. They had not crushed the knight, the peasant and the Anabaptist in order to smooth Charles's path to absolutism but their own. The emperor was the last obstacle to the full development of territorial despotism and the real inwardness of the struggle is illustrated by the fact that the cities, Protestant though they were, for the most part stood aloof or sided with the emperor. The Lutheran North remained passive, and the so-called War of Liberation presents many of the features of an oligarchic plot. The treaty between the German princes and the King of France was signed at Chambord, and at Friedwald in January 1552. Henry intervened in Germany, as he did in Italy, as the champion of national liberties against the emperor. And while in March he threw 35,000 men into Lorraine, he hardened his heart against the heretics in France. In fact, his devotion to German freedom, although more specious, was no more real than his love of toleration and the German lands which fell into his power fared at least as ill as ever they would have done under Charles V. The double face which France showed from 1532 to 1648, Catholic at home and Protestant abroad, was a religious guise adopted to help her in her secular rivalry with the House of Austria, and never did it stand her in better stead than in 1552. In that year, Henry II avenged the defeats and imprisonment inflicted on his father by Charles V 
and thus embittered the close of the emperor's life with failure and humiliation as the french troops crossed the frontier maurice william of hesse and margrave albrecht alcibiades concentrated thirty thousand men in franconia the emperor was not so ignorant of maurice's designs as has often been supposed his commissioner lazarus schwendi had sound warning notes from the camp at magdeburg but success had made charles confident and careless and he failed to realise the danger until it was too late to organise resistance on april the sixth he was thinking of flight to the netherlands but the way was blocked already he suspected ferdinand's loyalty and others have believed that the king of the romans had a secret understanding with maurice ferdinand had ample grounds for discontent but there seems to be no proof of treason on his part maurice who had outwitted the keenest diplomats at charles's court may well have duped his brother he had promised to meet the king at linz on april the fourth but ferdinand was not prepared for the guise in which he came on that day augsburg fell before the princes the resistance of nuremberg ulm and strasburg alone marred the completeness of their victory for bavaria and Württemberg were their secret allies on the eighteenth maurice was at linz ferdinand sought to negotiate an armistice but maurice refused to date it earlier than may twenty sixth and used the interval to draw his net round charles in spite of the words attributed to him that he had no cage big enough for such a bird maurice did not shrink from pressing his illustrious fugitive and hoped as he said to run the fox to earth on the nights of may the eighteenth to the nineteenth he seized the pass of Ehrenberg. Twelve days earlier, Charles had been foiled in an attempt to escape to Constance and to pass on thence to the Netherlands. He had no troops to withstand Maurice, but a mutiny in the elector's forces gave him a few hours' respite, and towards evening, with a few attendants, he fled amid rain and snow across the Brenner. The victor of Mulberg was an almost solitary fugitive in his empire the assembled fathers at trent broke up in dismay having it was said no mind to argue points of doctrine with soldiers in arms and the emperor's soaring plans dissolved like castles in spain it was the darkest hour in charles's career but soon the twilight began to glimmer the emperor found a refuge at villac in carinthia while Maurice went to the conference at Passau, where his own troubles began to gather. He demanded as the price of peace security against Habsburg aggression in Germany, restoration of princely privilege, and a guarantee of the Lutheran religion, irrespective of the decrees of the Council of Trent. The Catholic princes assembled at Passau were disposed to concede these terms, but to connive at permanent achism was incompatible with Charles's rigid Catholic conscience. Nothing could bend his iron will, not the advance of the Turk, nor the success of the French in Italy, nor his own personal peril. He insisted that the question of religious peace must be referred to a Diet. 
On that point he refused to yield an inch, and among the circumstances which preserved so large a portion of Germany to the Roman Catholic faith, not the least is the unshaken constancy which Charles V evinced at the sorest crisis of the Catholic cause in Germany. His courage had its reward. Margrave Albrecht had separated from his allies and was pursuing a wild career of murder and sacrilege in Franconia, where he dreamt of carving a secular duchy out of the bishop's spiritualities. In six weeks he extorted nearly a million crowns by way of ransom. Maurice failed in his attack on Frankfort when he lost one of his ablest lieutenants by the death of George of Mecklenburg. The advance of Henry II had been checked by the valour of Strasbourg. Charles had released John Frederick, and with a little help, the Ernestine Wettin could raise a storm which would drive his cousin from Saxony, while Hans of Custrin would willingly join in the fray in return for a share of the Albertine lands. Conscious that the nation was not really behind him, and that he would lose his all by defeat, Maurice reluctantly yielded to Charles's demand that the religious question should be left to a diet. Margrave Albrecht roughly refused to accept the peace, and when Maurice marched to help Ferdinand against the Turks, many of his troops mutinied and took service with Albrecht. The Margrave's disgust was not due to zeal for the Protestant faith, but to the fact that Maurice had played both hands in the game and reduced his partner to a dummy. Fortune seemed to be turning, and Charles thought of refusing to ratify the treaty, delayed the liberation of Philip of Hesse, and returned to his schemes for creating a friendly league and securing the empire for his son. He appeared to have learnt and forgotten nothing, but his advisers were more amenable. Queen Maria opposed these plans, Ferdinand denounced them, and the fear lest his obstinacy should drive his brother into Maurice's arms induced Charles to submit and sign the Treaty of Passau. Reluctantly the Emperor surrendered for the moment his dynastic projects and assumed the part of the champion of Germany against the French invader. Emerging from Villac and journeying by way of Augsburg, where he could not refrain from once more overthrowing the democratic government and expelling some of the more obnoxious preachers who had returned in Maurice's train, Charles appeared on the Rhine, determined to wrest Metz, Toul, and Verdun from the French. Metz was the key of the situation, and it had been amply provisioned and skilfully fortified by the Duke of Guise. On the last day of October 1552, the siege was formally opened, and Charles strengthened his forces by an unscrupulous alliance with Albrecht Asibiades. The Margrave's brutalities had roused all Franconia against him, and he had been forced to flee to the court of Henry II. But court life had no attractions for him, and the French king hesitated to entrust so doubtful an ally with important commands. So Albrecht escaped, captured the Duke of Ormal, and with this peace offering came into Charles's camp. His terms with the imperial sanction of his spoliation 
of the bishops of Würzburg and Bamberg. Necessity knows no law, wrote Charles to his sister, as he struck his bargain with the worst lawbreaker in Germany and sanctioned his sacrilegious plunder of Bamberg and Würzburg. But Albrecht could not remedy the defects of Alva's generalship. Produce harmony between Germans and Spaniards in the Emperor's army, or make any impression on Metz. For a month after his generals had recognised that success was impossible, Charles refused to admit his defeat. But at length the havoc wrought among his Italian and Spanish troops by a midwinter siege conquered even his obstinacy. With a grumble at the fickleness of fortune, who preferred a young king to an old emperor, he raised the siege on January the 1st, 1558, and turned his back on his German dominions forever. Success in the war with France would have meant a renewed effort to divide and crush the Lutheran princes, to rivet the Spanish succession on Germany, and to restore the Catholic faith. Charles's failure left Germany free to settle these questions herself. Already meditating abdication and retirement from the world, the emperor journeyed to Brussels. He was cheered by the capture of Terouanne from the French and the triumph of Mary in England, but German affairs were resigned into the hands of the king of the Romans. The evil which Charles had done by his bargain with Albrecht survived his departure, and it is a lurid comment upon the emperor's reign that its last days were characterised by as wild an anarchy as Germany had known in all her turbulent history. The Margrave having performed a last service to Charles by saving his guns during the retreat from Metz, proceeded once more to trouble his foes in Germany, and as nearly all Germany hated the emperor, Albrecht was free to turn his arms in whatever direction he chose. The League of Heidelberg, formed in March 1558, for the preservation of the peace and prevention of Philip's election, consisted of Catholics and Protestants, and was too general to be very effective. Moreover, Albrecht's onslaughts on bishops and priests won him a good deal of secret sympathy. The situation was full of confusion. The Emperor, the extreme Protestants, and the Ernestine Wettins and Margrave Albrecht were all in more or less open opposition to the Albertine Maurice, King Ferdinand, and the Heidelberg League. Charles had more than once divided the Lutherans. He had now divided the House of Habsburg. Maurice alone could restore peace to the Empire. His campaign in Hungary had not been successful and Zapolia's widow, with Solomon's help, retained control of Transylvania. But Persia once more diverted the Turks' attention from west to east, and gave Maurice and Ferdinand respite to deal with Albrecht and his notorious lieutenant, Wilhelm von Grumbach. Maurice, who had posed as the liberator of Germany from Spanish tyranny, was now to play the part of saviour, of society from princely anarchy. Charles had left the empire to its fate. The Heidelberg League was powerless, and a decree of the Reichschammergericht against Albrecht would be a mere form of words. 
Could Maurice succeed amid this maze of impotence? No prize might be beyond his reach. At eager he concerted measures with Ferdinand and dispatched his brother for Danish aid. Albrecht, after winning another victory at Pommersfelden on April the 11th, renewed his ravages in Franconia, and his excesses were worse than those of the Peasants' War. He then turned against the Catholic Duke Henry of Brunswick Wolfenbuttel, and thought of utilising John Frederick's hatred of Maurice and Elector Joachim's friendship with Charles to draw them both to his side. Even Landgrave Philip of Hesse was loath to assist his son-in-law against so good an enemy of the priests. On July the ninth, fifteen fifty-eight, at Sieverhausen, the forces of Albrecht and Maurice met. It was the fiercest battle fought in German lands for many a day. Beside it, Mulberg was the merest skirmish. Maurice won the day but lost his life. A wound from a musket ball proved fatal on the 11th, and one of the most extraordinary careers in history was cut short at the age of 32 years. The death of Maurice brought no redress to his injured and aged cousin. The Saxon electorate continued in the Albertine branch of the family, passing to Maurice's brother Augustus, a man of conciliatory temper, who had incurred none of the odium attaching to Maurice, and could look for support to his Danish father-in-law, Christian III. Charles V had no longer a private grudge to revenge by restoring his former captive. John Frederick did not survive the disappointment by many months. He died on March the 8th, 1554, a classic instance of fortune's perversity. He suffered more severely than any prince of his age, and his coveted electoral dignity passed into a rival house, never to be restored. And the only solace vouchsafed to the Ernestine branch was the restitution of Altenburg, Neustadt, and some other districts ceded to Maurice in 1547. Yet John Frederick was the most blameless of men. The example of constancy and very mirror of true magnanimity in these are days to all princes. Such is the verdict of one contemporary. Better known is the glowing description by Roger Ascham. One in all fortunes desired of his friends, reverenced of his foes, favoured of the emperor, loved of all. With the disappearance of Maurice, the emperor's interest in Albrecht Alcibiades waned. It was in vain that the Margrave beat the anti-ecclesiastical drum more furiously than ever, or that many a North German prince and city came to secret terms. Duke Henry of Brunswick displayed unwanted vigour and defeated Albrecht at Stetterberg on September the 12th, 1553. On December the 1st, the long-delayed ban was proclaimed and a second victory won by Duke Henry at Schwarzach on June the 13th, 1554. Drove Albrecht again as a fugitive to the French court. Peace was at length restored and Germany prepared for that diet which was to settle its religious affairs for two generations. Permanent toleration of heresy was inevitable in the existing condition of German politics. 
and the prospect of such unwelcome violence to his conscience determined the emperor definitely to withdraw from his imperial responsibilities his formal abdication of the empire was not made until three years later his relinquishment of the netherlands only took place in fifteen fifty five and that of his spanish kingdoms in fifteen fifty six but the end of his reign in germany may be dated from the summer of fifteen fifty four when he empowered ferdinand to settle the question of religion with the diet but not in his name the city which had witnessed the birth of the lutheran faith was also to see its legitimation and on february the fifth fifteen fifty five ferdinand opened another great diet at augsburg no elector was present in person of the ecclesiastical princes only two the bishops of augsburg and eichstadt attended and of temporal princes only four the young archduke charles the dukes of bavaria and wurtemberg and the margrave of baden the catholics still had a majority in the diet and it cost them a severe mental struggle to relinquish the fundamental position of catholicism the seamless unity of the christian church but common action with protestants in opposition to the spanish succession in defence of princely privilege against charles and of public peace against albrecht had paved the way not to an agreement in religious matters but to an agreement to differ about them yet even this compromise was not reached till ferdinand had made one more effort to save ecclesiastical unity he proposed that the diet should first deal with the question of public peace and refer religion to a council or to a conference duke christopher of wurtemberg and the elector of brandenburg were not averse to the idea and the latter even suggested the interim as the basis of an agreement but the hand of the diet was forced by the lutheran convention at naumburg which was attended by more german princes than the diet itself here it was determined to abide by the confession of augsburg and this decision was upheld by the elector augustus the sons of john frederick and the landgraves of hesse while the elector joachim hastily withdrew his ill-advised suggestion with regard to the interim thereupon the electoral college at augsburg decided to deal with the religious question at once and demanded religious peace at any price the catholic princes led by the cardinal archbishop of augsburg protested but christopher of wurtemberg came over to the protestant side and presently the bishop of augsburg was summoned to conclaves at rome necessitated by the successive deaths of julius the third and marcellus the second the protestants now put forward their full demands they required security not merely for all present but all future subscribers to the confession of augsburg and liberty to enjoy not only such ecclesiastical property as had already been secularised but all that might be confiscated hereafter lutherans in catholic states were to have complete toleration while no such privilege was to be accorded to catholics in lutheran territories they sought in fact to reduce the catholics 
to the position to which they had themselves been reduced by the recess of spear in fifteen twenty nine every legal obstacle to the lutheran development was to be removed while catholics were deprived of their means of defence the catholics were not yet brought so low as to submit to such terms for months the struggle of parties went on and it seemed possible that another religious war might ensue eventually a compromise was arranged mainly by ferdinand and augustus of saxony security was granted to all lutheran princes episcopal jurisdiction in their lands was to cease and they might retain all ecclesiastical property secularized before the treaty of passau fifteen fifty two provided it was not immediately subject to the empire for the future each territorial secular prince might choose between the catholic and lutheran faith and his decision was to bind all of his subjects if a subject rejected his sovereign's religion the only privilege he could claim was liberty to migrate into other lands there remained two all-important points in dispute the lutherans still required toleration for the adherents of their confession in catholic states and the catholics demanded that any ecclesiastical prince who abjured catholicism should forfeit his lands and dignities the catholic objections to the first demand were insuperable and the lutherans were compelled to content themselves with an assurance by ferdinand which was not incorporated in the recess did not become law of the empire and of which the reichskammergericht could therefore take no cognizance the catholic requirement about spiritual princes was met by the famous ecclesiastical reservation which imposed forfeiture of lands and dignities on bishops who forsook the catholic faith this was incorporated in the recess but the lutherans made their own reservation and declared that they did not consider themselves bound by the proviso the so-called peace of augsburg embodied in the recess which was published on september the twenty fifth fifteen fifty five thus rested upon a double equivocation and contained in itself the seeds of the thirty years war it was in fact no more than a truce concluded not because the two parties had decided the issues upon which they fought but because they were for the moment tired of fighting and no half measure was ever pursued by a more relentless nemesis the ecclesiastical reservation has been condemned as the worst sin of omission of which protestant germany was guilty as a criminal and cowardly evasion of a vital decision which delay could only make more difficult the artificial perpetuation of spiritual principalities only served to buttress the habsburg power and postpone the achievement of national unity in the other scale a catholic would place the fact that to the rescue of the ecclesiastical electorates from the rising tide of protestantism must be attributed in no small measure the hold which catholicism still retains on western germany this lame and halting conclusion of nearly forty years strife has been hailed as the birth of religious liberty 
but it is mockery to describe the principle which underlay the peace of augsburg as one of toleration cugius regio aegis religio is a maxim as fatal to true religion as it is to freedom of conscience it is the creed of erastian despotism the formula in which the german territorial princes expressed the fact that they had mastered the church as well as the state even for princes religious liberty was limited to the choice of one out of two alternatives the dogmas of rome or those of wittenberg the door of germany was barred against swingley calvin and socinus and in neither the lutheran nor the roman church was there the same latitude that there was in the catholic church of the middle ages the onslaughts of her enemies compelled rome to define her doctrines and to narrow her communion if the catholic church was purified in the process it was also rendered more puritan it became exclusive rather than comprehensive roman rather than catholic to define the faith is to limit the faithful the age was one of definitions and it destroyed forever the hope of a real catholicism but even this meagre liberty of choice between two exclusive communions was denied to the mass of the german people for them the change consisted in this that instead of having their faith determined for them by the church it was settled by their territorial princes instead of a clerical there was a lay persecution instead of a remote prospect of being burnt the german dissenter after fifteen fifty five enjoyed a much more imminent prospect of being banished for the tyranny of wittenberg if it was less than that of rome after the council of trent was certainly greater than that of the catholic church before the appearance of luther luther enunciated the principle of religious liberty of individual priesthood but he and his followers imposed another bondage which went far to render this declaration ineffectual the chief actual contribution of the lutheran reformation to religious liberty was thus indirect almost undesigned it produced the first church independent of rome and prepared the way for countless other religious communities which however narrowly they may define their individual formularies tend by their number to enforce mutual toleration private morality has been evolved out of the conflicting interests of an infinite mass of individuals international law depends upon the multiplicity of independent states and the best guarantee for the freedom of conscience consists in the multitude and relative impotence of the churches there is no more disappointing epoch in german history than the reign of charles v if in its course it shattered some idols it also shattered ideals it began full of hope and the nation seemed young there were plans for reforming the church and renewing the empire no one dreamt of dividing the one and destroying the other yet such was the result the reformation began with ideas and ended in force in the germany of the sixteenth as in that of the nineteenth century an era of liberal thought closed in a fever of war 
the persuasions of sweetness and light were drowned by the beat of the drum and the blare of the trumpet and methods of blood and iron supplanted the forces of reason no ideas it was found in religion or politics could survive unless they were cast in the hard material mould of german territorialism the triumph of this principle is really the dominant note of the period territorialism ruined the empire captured the reformation crushed the municipal independence of the cities and lowered the status of the peasant the fall of the imperial power was perhaps inevitable but it was hastened by charles v in the first place his dynastic and spanish policy weakened his authority as a national monarch in the second his adoption of the cause of the church threw the reformers into the arms of the territorial princes the success of the reformation thus meant that of the oligarchic principle and the ruin of german monarchy the reformation of the empire became incompatible with the reformation of the church and the seal on charles's failure was set by the diet of augsburg which besides concluding a truce of religion removed the reichsgammergericht the organization of the circles and the preservation of the peace from the sphere of imperial influence henceforward germany was not a kingdom but a collection of petty states whose rulers were dominated by mutual jealousies from the time of charles v to that of frederick the great germany ceased to be an international force it was rather the arena in which the other nations of europe the spaniard the frenchman the swede the pole and the turk fought out their diplomatic and military struggles the kaisertum was but one of the prince's victims the burgertum also fell before them the vigorous city life of the middle ages was a thing of the past in many a german town the representative of the territorial sovereign domineered over the elect of the burghers interfered in their administration and even controlled their finances on the shores of the baltic the destruction of town independence involved the loss of germany's maritime power and not till our own day has this eclipse begun to pass with the decay of civic life went also the ruin of municipal arts and civilization and in its stead there was only the mainly formal culture of the petty german court no age in germany was more barren of intellectual inspiration than that which succeeded the peace of augsburg the internecine struggles of the reign of charles v had exhausted all classes in the nation and an era of universal lassitude followed intellectually morally and politically germany was a desert and it was called religious peace end of section twenty nine